The Interchange is brought to you by Fluence. Fluence is a global leader in battery-based energy storage technology and services. From commercializing the first grid-connected battery systems in 2008 to the multi-gigawatt fleet being deployed for customers globally today, the Fluence team is ensuring that storage is the cornerstone of our zero-carbon electric grid future. Learn more at FluenceEnergy.com and join them on their mission to transform the way we power our world. We're also brought to you by the team at Wood McKenzie. Wood McKenzie is Green Tech Media's parent company, and they have been making some big moves lately. You might know Genscape as a data company that puts super powerful cameras on farmland to keep an eye on power plants. Well, Genscape is the latest upgrade to Wood McKenzie's power sector supercomputer. As coronavirus continues to impact the power sector, the Wood McKenzie power team is delivering actionable real-time data on how our new reality is shaping demand profiles day-to-day and looks at markets and pricing years into the future. Learn more about how Wood McKenzie Power Markets Intelligence gives your team an edge at woodmckenzie.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from GTM. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Stephen Lacey, my normal co-host and our fearless leader, is uh, apparently lost somewhere in the Vermont wilderness at the moment. So... We're missing him this week, but we hope that he will be back next week. Uh, But we couldn't wait for him to return to release an episode because there's actually just too much going on in this crazy climate tech world at the moment. Case in point, last week, Sunrun, which is the largest residential solar company in the United States, announced its intent to acquire Vivint Solar, which is the second largest residential solar company in the United States, in an all-stock transaction that would value the combined entity at more than $9 billion at closing. This is a big deal. First, it's literally a big deal. The enterprise value attached to Vivint is $3.2 billion, which would make it the single largest transaction in the history of the distributed energy market, as far as I can tell. But it's also a big deal because of what it says about the state and the future of distributed solar, plus potentially adjacent markets like energy storage or maybe even electric vehicles. So that's what we're going to talk about today, this Sunrun Vivint transaction, what the strategy is behind it, and what it might tell us about the next phase in this market. But first, I thought it would be fun to offer a little bit of history for what led us to today. The U.S. solar market has been around for decades, literally since the 1970s. It was, you know, for a long time, a very niche little market that was largely reserved for either very wealthy people, very hippie people, or pot growers in Mendocino County in California. But the market really started to take off around 2008, when two companies emerged around the same time with the same idea, which was to start financing residential solar through leases or power purchase agreements. So the idea was instead of paying the, at the time, $30,000 plus upfront capital expenditure and then getting a payback uh, over time by saving on your electric bill, these companies basically said, we'll finance these um, off balance sheet. You, the customer, will get savings on day one and you'll have to pay as little as zero money down, right? And these days this is totally commonplace. But back then, it was a pretty revolutionary concept for residential solar. And that caused the market to take off. And of course, the two companies that were early leaders in that space were Sunrun and SolarCity. 
The third that came along around that same time that was pursuing a similar model was Sungevity. So those three really emerged as, as the top players in the market in the early days when residential solar was starting to take off. They had very different business models, though, and as we now know, very different outcomes. SolarCity pursued from the start a vertically integrated model. This was born probably in part from the fact that the founders of SolarCity were cousins of Elon Musk. Elon Musk was the chairman of the board. Tesla obviously has pursued a vertical integration strategy in the auto market. Very similar idea with SolarCity. Vertical integration in this case meant that, at least initially, they were doing everything from the customer acquisition and installation up back through the financing. Sunrun took a different approach. They had a more horizontal approach, wherein initially they would do no installations of their own, but instead they would offer financing and some additional tools to other installers, to local installers or regional installers. And then there were some business models in between, like Sungevity, which had a, basically a hybrid model. But SolarCity and Sunrun, pursuing these two different strategies, um, started to, to dominate the market, at least as it was scaling. In residential solar history, there are a million really interesting twists and turns, but a few other key moments that will bring us to today. First, Vivint Solar, the other company we're going to be talking about today, emerged in 2011. They pioneered the door-to-door -door sales model for solar. Vivint is a Utah-based company founded by Mormons, and you know the original iteration of Vivint was taking a lot of Mormon ex-missionaries and sending them door-to-door -to, -door to sell solar. It turns out to be a really effective way to sell solar, and they very quickly emerged to become a major player in the residential solar market. Fast forward to 2014, all three of those companies, SolarCity, Sunrun, and Vivint, go public in what was maybe actually the only real wave of clean tech IPOs that we've seen in a single sector. I can't think of another sector where we've had, you know, multiple companies going public in a short period of time. Then in 2015, Sun Edison, which at the time was pretty high flying and had stated public intentions to become the world's first renewable energy superpower, announces its intent to get into the residential solar business, which it had not been historically. It had been in commercial solar and utility scale by buying Vivint out of the public market in a deal that would have valued the company at that time at $2.2 billion. That deal ultimately becomes the straw that breaks Sun Edison's camel's back and sends Sun Edison spiraling ultimately into bankruptcy, which then leads the deal to never come to fruition. Meanwhile, in 2016, Tesla comes along and acquires Solar City in, you know, what at the time, I think, and probably in, in historical terms also viewed as something of a bailout for a company that was heading for a fair amount of financial distress. So they buy Solar City for $2.6 billion and then proceed to essentially shred the business apart piece by piece over the course of the next four years. So for the last three or four years, Sunrun has been an ascendant superpower leader in the market. Vivint has been in the process of basically recovery from this failed acquisition by Sun Edison and kind of re managed to regain its footing just as a standard run-of-the-mill vertically integrated residential solar player. And SolarCity has essentially disappeared within the nether regions of Tesla. Meanwhile, as all of this is going on, the U.S. installs over well over 2 million residential solar installations. So it becomes a pretty mature market. 
And that brings us to today when Sunrun announces the intent to acquire Vivint and create a real residential solar superpower. And that also brings us finally to our guest. I am not going to just soliloquize on this topic for the next hour. I'm actually really excited to have with me Austin Perea. Austin is a senior analyst at Wood McKenzie Power and Renewables, um, formerly on my team at GTM Research. Excited to have you back chatting with me. And Austin specializes in the U.S. distributed generation market. So perfect person to talk to about this. Austin, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Michelle. First of all, anything in my long history of residential solar <laughs> that I missed? Any other major moments in residential solar past that you think are important? No, I think that that covers a lot of it. I think it's it's probably just worth uh, re-emphasizing how big of a deal Solar City was um, and how much market share they actually had. I, I was curious about the numbers that Sunrun and Vivint put together for um, for this for this announcement. And actually, if you look back at Solar City's peak um, back in 2016, even before they got acquired by Tesla. They had installed about 650 megawatts in 2016, which is nearly what the combined entities of Sunrun and Vivint reported installed in 2019. So I think just a little context of this conversation is that uh, they're getting to similar volumes. The combined entity of Sunrun and Vivint are getting to uh, the volumes that SolarCity had at their peak uh, pre-Tesla acquisition, which I think might might, might come up later in the conversation. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that question or a version of that question, which is my recollection is Solar City at its peak right around that time owned about a third of the residential solar market. They were installing about a third of all residential projects. How big is or what market share does Sunrun have today and how much will Vivint add to that? Like what what share of the overall market will those two companies have together? Yeah, so Sunrun will have about Sunrun currently has about 9% of the market and Vivint is about 7 or 8% in 2019. So the combined uh entity will be um somewhere between 15 and, and 20% of the overall market. And yeah, that's one of the things that I think is interesting about residential solar that folks on the outside maybe don't recognize, which is that there are a small number of pretty big players, Sunrun and Vivint amongst them, Sonova also a public company. I mentioned some of the other ones, but there is still an extremely long tail of small installers. It's not still not a highly consolidated market. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think, and we'll we'll, we'll get into this, but I think one of the questions that this brings to light is the scalability of the national installer model. I mean, since through the past decade, right, we've seen a number of uh, companies with national aspirations uh, eventually get you know shifted to the to the wayside, and some have declared bankruptcy, and a lot of have shuttered their doors. And now at this point, it's really just Sunrun and the combined entity of Sunrun and Vivint. And uh, you know the remnants of Tesla, which I think it's it is interesting to. I know you kind of asked about the you know local installers, which are still such a huge part of the market. But Tesla, you know, we 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 talk about Tesla in uh, somewhat of a, of a flippant manner this day, just given that they had such a significant market share back in 2016 and have 
as you said, shredded their business, but they still account for 5% of the market and they're still the number two, now the number two uh, installer, though there are a handful of regional installers that are kind of coming after that market share. Um, But they still are doing a lot of installations with all that said. Right. I mean, it goes to your earlier point, like they were so dominant only four years ago that they can be a shell of their former selves and still be what is now going to be the second largest installer in the country. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk for a minute about the terms of this deal. And then I want to spend more time on thinking through what the strategy behind it might be and what it tells us about the market overall. So high level, just walk us through the terms of the the transaction that Sunrun has proposed. Yeah, sure thing. So Sunrun is planning to buy Vivint for an enterprise value of $3.2 billion. Um, for context, Tesla bought SolarCity for $2.6 billion in 2016. Um, it's 100% stock consideration. It'll be 0.55 shares of Sunrun common stock for each share of Vivint Solar. Um, so that will leave Vivint shareholders with about 36% of the combined entity. Um, Vivint Solar leadership and sales team will be a pretty big part of the Sunrun's organization. David Bywater, who is the CEO of Vivint, will be chair of the integration committee. And Sunrun's board of directors will be expanding by adding two directors, one of which is expected to be Vivint CEO David Bywater. And as far as timing goes, we're expecting it to close around Q4 2020. As we've mentioned before, just with respect to market share, it doesn't seem like there are any kind of monopoly or antitrust issues here. So uh, we're expecting a Q4 2020 closure for the for the deal. And the markets appear to love it. Both both stocks have popped since then. So no indication that shareholders have any issue with it either. Right. Um, what was the stated rationale? What, it, what, did, what do we know from what has been publicly stated as to why this makes sense? Yeah. So, th- so the stated rationale are basically two or three major points. Stated rationale is first and foremost that Acquiring Vivint offers a complementary sales channel with respect to their uh, Vivint's direct-to-home sales. As you mentioned earlier in the show, Vivint pioneered the door-to-door sales model and has been pretty good at that model. And it's a very costly form of customer acquisition, but they are able to to move volumes through it. So, granted, Sunrun is already in the door-to-door space, but this does add an, an additional more uh, additional volume for their their direct-to-home sales. So there's that component. There are uh, some operational synergies that I think are very defensible. Um, they've highlighted $90 million of, or 4% of the assumed combined cost stack um, in terms of cost and operational synergies, right? So that's branch consolidation, operational uh, personnel side, so installation, crew consolidation, joint sales efforts, um, increased sourcing capabilities in the supply chain, given that they're doubling their market share, they have a lot of leverage over negotiating procurement on the module side, the, the, the solar supply chain. Probably about four to five cents of reduction in cost that they could actually glean from that. So nothing to sneeze at. There's shared corporate functions in their consolidation of HR, legal, accounting, and policy that can reduce overhead expenses. And then there are also some financial benefits as um, of that as well, right? So having a stronger company balance sheet should allow them to raise um, debt more easily. They should be able to uh, attract repeat investors for higher dollar, more frequent, and increase 
increasingly standardized securitizations, which will be rewarded with lower capital costs. And they also, you know, there are some institutional investors that, such as pension fund managers, that have higher investment thresholds that Sunrun could potentially reach now, given the increased market cap, which would also reduce their cost of uh, cost of capital. Yeah. So let's talk through each of those, I think, individually, because they're interesting in their own right. So the first one that you mentioned is the complementary sales channel, the door-to-door capabilities. Now, first question here is, you know, in the modern environment, given COVID and, and work from home, shelter in place, et cetera, one would think that the door-to-door sales model is actually suffering more than any other model. Do we have data yet to suggest whether door-to-door is a bad fit for the times? We don't have data to support that claim, but you know, part of what we do at Wim McKenzie, there is a lot of uh, data collection and aggregation, but there's also a lot of talking with with developers and installers and you know lead gen organizations. And door to door is very much suffering right now, um, especially in the first half of the year, right? So you had a handful of states that actually outright banned door-to-door, right? So New Jersey, I think Pennsylvania, Illinois, uh, New York completely shut down solar installation and sales in general. But there have been, I mean, uh, in addition to consumer um, consumer protection issues that have been gaining national prominence, the there have been state-level restrictions on door-to-door sales specifically, as well as in-person sales more generally. Um, so we saw that in the first part of the COVID pandemic. And that has rebounded a bit over the past few uh, few weeks here, and I guess the few months in, in, in the Northeast, at least. But what we're seeing again now is that Southern states like Texas, Florida, Arizona, that did not take precautions beforehand to deal with COVID um, are seeing huge spikes in cases and are now accordingly having to shut down. And door-to-door is going to definitely take a hit from that. Um, even states that were more progressive about their restrictions on solar sales um, are seeing a spike in case as well, like such as such as in California. So um, long long winded answer. But I would I would my my opinion on this is that, you know, we are increasingly shifting to a a situation in which folks are pivoting towards uh, online sales and digital sales platforms. And Sunrun is basically making a bet on a, a somewhat outdated form of uh, form of customer acquisition, which is not to say that it, it, it hasn't been successful in the past. Uh, I would argue that it's it's hard to make the case that it's the future of how residential solar is going to be sold. Right. The other component here that I think is interesting is the geographic expansion mm. strategy, which right. I think a lot of folks have gotten wrong in looking at this deal because they've looked at it only from the higher level and you've done some really interesting analysis that's a little bit deeper, which is to say, at the high level, you look at, for example, the state markets that Sunrun and Vivint are in, and they overlap almost entirely. They're basically in the same states. And even beyond that, if you look at like their sales offices, like 95% uh-huh. of them overlap with each other or you know very near each other. But I think that belies um, some important details about the types of customers that Sunrun and Vivint go after and the results as to where they have really strong geographic coverage within a region or within a city. Do you want to talk a little bit about how they are distinct from each other on that frame? 
Yeah, sure thing. And real quick shout out to my colleague, Brian White, who is an analyst on our distributed solar team who helped put together some of that geographic uh, analysis. But yeah, the, the, the geographic footprint rationale is interesting in addition to that, because a lot of times when you hear about complementary acquisitions, you typically hear about you know, this expands our footprint into geographies that we were not previously in, which is not the case for um, for Sunrun and Vivint. So we did an analysis looking at the top five, uh, where we have project level, we did an analysis of the top five cities where we do have project level installation data. So that's California, Arizona, Massachusetts, and New Jersey. And of those 20 cities, the, the top city for Sunrun and the top city cities for Vivint were, I think there was over 50% overlap, right? So they uh, are definitely, Vivint is looking at a slightly different customer demographic, if, if only because they're focusing on door-to-door sales. Um, but I think the reality is that they will be able to consolidate a lot of the market share in, in some of those states. So, and even, uh, I think the the bare minimum combined market share that they'll have in most of their top cities, at least, is about 30% of the market, whereas the kind of upper uh, upper bound of that is close to 70% market share. So I think there is some, I think that rationale holds true to a certain extent. Um, I think the reality is that it's not so much entering new markets so much as is doubling down and establishing a dominant presence in major markets where they've been competing for business with Vivint. And that actually leads me to an additional point about their cost of customer acquisition. Yeah, let's transition to talking about customer acquisition costs. This has been an interesting dynamic over the course of residential solar history. Um, Ravi Mangani, who's the head of head of solar at, at Wooden uh, McKenzie, sent me a note the other day where he was um, looking at some analysis that we had pulled together, I think in 2013 or something like that around cost of solar customer acquisition and, you know, had projected a fairly steady decline in, in customer acquisition costs that was going to get down to what looked like more reasonable numbers uh, that would have gotten us in 2020 down to like 30 or 40 cents a watt or something like that. That has not been, what has played out. And in fact, that has been one of the knocks on this national installer model is can you scale to a national level and keep customer acquisition costs down? So what is the state of the cost of customer acquisition for for solar? And what does it make us think about companies like Sunrun and Vivint versus the smaller local guys? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is the the prime question too, right? It's all about customer acquisition. So, I mean, just just for my own editorial bent here, I do think you know some of the things that we mentioned earlier, and specifically the operational synergies, right? Ninety million uh, or four percent of the assumed combined cost tech. Like, I think those are defensible ways to sell this acquisition. But when we're looking at this, it's like the cost of customer acquisition is still close to, especially for Sunrun. And Vivint is close to a third of the overall cost stack. And so that's the only area in which we're going to see, or that even has the room for some downward pressure, right? Like in terms of hardware costs, we're not going to see much more than two to three cent uh, cost reductions over the next 10 years or so. So if you're going to try to be more competitive on price, it has to be the cost of customer acquisition. So to answer your question, the state of customer acquisition right now is that local installers that 
rely primarily on their referrals and just the kind of their own brand recognition in a very, very localized market are able to, their, their cost of customer acquisition come in at around 25 to 30 cents a watt. And those begin to scale up as you start to add more and more volume. So, uh, you know, larger installers and that are, you know, still on the local level or maybe doing 40 cents a watt. When you get to the mid-tier regional players, they're anywhere from 50 to 60 cents a watt. And then the large, uh, the largest, you know, national installers, Sunrun and Vivint, are really in the anywhere from 80 to over, well over a dollar a watt in terms of uh, all-in cost of customer acquisition. So one of the things that has not been highlighted a lot in the reporting for the, the acquisition is that we know from, from talking to folks that Sunrun and Vivint have effectively been in a bidding war, uh, an unsustainable bidding war for leads and sales in major markets over the past few years. So really since Vivint established their third-party sales channel partners back in 2017, which put some more pressure on Sunrun to do the same, they have been driving the the cost of customer acquisition up, mostly from their from, from sales commissions. Um, when you are looking at a lot of third party dealers, they don't really have a lot of, uh, a lot of allegiance with respect to who is, uh, you know, who is actually purchasing their sale. They're just going to go to the highest bidder. And especially after Solar City exited the game, there weren't, there just weren't as many players and regional installers didn't have the, have the, the balance sheet to keep on shelling out money for these more expensive, uh, sales. Whereas, Sunrun and Vivint had pressure due to the fact of being both publicly traded companies to actually perform on volumes that they were willing to shell out that that money for those sales. And so all that said, taking Vivint and absorbing Vivint and taking them out of the, the conversation on this uh, with respect to leads and sales should, in theory, from at least in the near term, reduce those cost of customer acquisitions in those key markets over the next few years. Yeah, this is one of the things that I found really interesting about the debate between should residential solar ultimately consolidate into a small number of large players or should it remain a very long tail of, of small local installers is you're balancing. On one hand, you have, the, you have some clear benefits of scale. I mean, you could just see this between the Sunrun and Vivint acquisition. You combine two of the largest players, you get $90 million in cost synergies just basically out of back office stuff. In addition to that, they obviously have an advantage in procurement. They are procuring far, far more hardware than anyone else is. Um, and so they have these clear scale benefits, but they're also, you know, that's weighed against the fact that their cost of customer acquisition is higher than the, the local competition. And so sort of you have to balance those two against each other. And so in, in that light, I think it makes this acquisition seem really smart because while it doesn't, I don't think, dramatically change the picture for customer acquisition for Sunrun, in fact, it may make it a little bit worse given the fact that's, that Vivint is so focused on door-to-door -door sales and door-to-door -door sales are the worst form of customer acquisition in today's exact environment. It does, as you said, one, remove a big competitor from the market and a bidder for leads from the market. You know, to the extent that customers are comparison shopping, it removes one of the larger players that they're going to comparison shop against. And it gets you all these back office synergies that you can use to just reduce the total cost of installation, whether or not that comes out of the customer acquisition cost. 
Right, right. I, I think I would just reiterate your point too, though, that there is an inflection point, right? The, where the economies of scale, especially in an environment where there's not a lot of movement on the hardware side, being thoughtful and strategic about your cost of customer acquisition is uh, something that I think the regional players, because they're somewhere from you know, 20, 30, maybe to 50% cheaper in terms of CAC, um, might have an edge over Sunrun the next few years. So basically, I'm, I'm curious to see what plays out here with respect to some of these larger um, players like Trinity or Momentum who have a real foothold in the Northeast or Titan Solar or Blue Raven Solar out in, in the Rocky Mountains in the Southwest. You know, what, what happens with respect to their scale and does that bidding war just kind of resurge with, uh, you know, mid-tier players who don't have the pressure of delivering on volumes on a consistent quarterly basis? D- does, does that dynamic resurface here? in a few years. But I do think in the near term that there is certainly some room for some reduction in that CAC that should be um, should allow for some, uh, some, some competitive advantage, at least for the next uh, few years. The other thing I would say is this seems to me to be like an amazingly good outcome for Vivint, actually. I mean, so Vivint, you know, as we've talked about before, Vivint was reeling from a failed acquisition a few years ago when Sun Edison went through bankruptcy and that whole deal fell apart. Vivint had to like pull itself back together and, you know, keep going and has would always have suffered from being smaller than Sunrun. There was no likely world in which Vivint was going to overtake Sunrun. It's always going to be subscale. It was always going to have a little bit harder of a time in the public markets raising capital. It didn't have the same power with procurement. And add on to that the fact that, you know, Vivint has the door-to-door sales model, which is tough in a COVID environment, and which I think we should talk about in a minute, has been a little slower to adopt like the next generation of technologies and services that the residential solar companies are likely to pursue. And so all that together means to me that if you had played out Vivint's future on its own, I don't think it was a super rosy future. Whereas instead, they get a 10% premium on the equity price. They get to be a part of what is now clearly far and away for the foreseeable future, the winner in residential solar. And they get all of the magic fairy dust from all the other stuff that Sunrun has been doing around things like energy storage. So it feels to me like this is like, whether or not this is the right move for Sunrun, it's definitely the right move for Vivint. Yeah, I, I totally buy that. Um, what What is interesting about that is that, you know, as you mentioned, Vivint, their energy storage attachment rates are, you know, five to ten percent lower than Sunruns, um, and their customer acquisition strategy is somewhat outdated. So I do think that in a lot of ways it is a better outcome for Vivint. But one interesting thing about this is kind of shifting gears to some of the the grid services model, right? Which is in so many ways the future of what Sunrun is is banking on. The aggregation of distributed energy resources, bidding that into wholesale and capacity markets. They have a lot riding on that grid services business model over the next few years. But it's actually, if you take a look at the project level data, you see the, some of these bidding wars that we've discussed you know, a few minutes ago, those were playing out in Massachusetts where Sunrun needs to deliver on a grid services ISO New England contract for 20 megawatts of distributed residential solar and storage uh, awarded for the 2022 Ford capacity market. And if you look at their installations, they haven't been doing super hot in Massachusetts. And in fact, even though Vivint has lower attachment rates, Vivint installed 8 megawatts in Q1 of this year in Massachusetts alone, compared to Sunrun, which only installed 
10 megawatts in all of 2019. So in one quarter, Vivint almost got to the same level of volume that that Sunrun had installed the previous year, which to some extent makes you wonder about if they were able to meet that grid services contract under the under their kind of current run rate. So I think now it probably won't matter. Vivint, you know, their pipeline will help support that. And now that the, you know, that bidding war uh, for leads and sales is probably going to, you know, come to, to Sunrun's favor, they'll be able to deliver on that. But if this had persisted for another, say, year or two, I would be a little nervous that not having Vivint's assets or not having some solar plus storage a- assets would um, kind of disqualify Sunrun from actually meeting their ISO New England obligation, which is a kind of linchpin in their grid services model. That um, gets to one of the other things that was, I think, in the press release or somewhere in the, the documents around the announced um, intention to merge, which was there was an allusion to Sunrun, which as we've been talking about is um, further ahead in the sort of residential solar plus storage world than Vivint is, being able to go back and retrofit a bunch of existing Vivint customers with Sunrun bright box storage systems. Do you buy that? Do we have any uh, Do we have any evidence that there has been you know a wave of retrofits of folks who got solar installed a couple of years ago now adding batteries? The retrofit market is a very, very small share of new capacity additions. Um, there are additional, I mean, it's just a lot cheaper to install it when you install the solar system. A lot of metering issues and just the labor costs that are associated with it. Um, I wish I had exact figures, but it's it's a substantial premium when you took a lot, talk about the overall construction installation costs to do residential solar and then do a retrofit a few years later. Um, I believe it's about less than 5% of the overall market. So it's not a super large share. And I would be a little hesitant about being receptive to that, to that rationale from Sunrun's perspective. We are going to take a momentary break to talk about our sponsor, Fluence. Energy storage has reached an inflection point in market adoption. It accelerates the deployment of renewables, it helps the world reach critical emissions reduction targets, and it delivers cost-effective grid services. Are you ready for the era of energy storage? Well, Fluence is. With over 12 years of experience and decades of energy sector knowledge, Fluence is your trusted partner for the most complex energy storage projects, pairing intimate market knowledge with cutting-edge technology and operational services. Their fully integrated sixth-generation technology stack combines modular factory-assembled hardware, comprehensive controls, and advanced digital intelligence with the latest safety advancements embedded in every level of product design and delivery. Scale from one megawatt to gigawatt-sized deployments with solutions tailored to your specific use case and application. Visit FluenceEnergy.com today to learn more. We're also brought to you by Wood McKenzie. Coronavirus is changing the shape of U.S. power markets. Business electricity demand fell when people stopped going into the office, and household demand hasn't picked up the slack. Across the country, demand and power prices have dropped. Who knows how long it will last? In ERCOT, the decline in power prices will reinforce the difficulty of financing new projects. In PJM, the near-term loss in loads is going to make oversupply from the recent boom in new natural gas plants even more challenging. And in California, the loss of demand is likely to make it easier for power providers to maintain generous reserve margins. What does that mean for your business and your projects? Well, the Wood Mackenzie Power Team can help 
you make decisions with confidence and minimize risk. If this is the kind of market intelligence you're looking for right now, Wood McKenzie has it here for you. Reach out at power at woodmac.com. That's power at woodmac.com to learn more about the power analysis that Wood McKenzie delivers to its clients. And it also helps inform this show too. Let's talk about the future. You know, what are we looking out for over the next couple of years in residential solar in general or specific to Sunrun Vivint as a newly combined entity? What are the big milestones? Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I think that there are there's a lot of defensible rationale for their near-term, the near-term strategic rationale for this, right? The operational synergies, geographic footprint, near-term CAC reduction, and some of, you know, meeting those near-term grid services uh, contracts. But in the long term, there are two fundamental questions that need to be answered here. One is how do they actually bring down their cost of customer acquisition? And in the long term, you do need to see that come down to be increasingly competitive in this space. This, the Vivint acquisition just does not answer any of those questions, really. And so I think that is, it's still unknown how they're going to bring their long-term cost of customer acquisition under control to a more sustainable um, space. And, you know, Solar City had super high cost of customer acquisition back in 2016. They were heavily reliant on door-to-door sales. That's part of the reason that they started Tesla, I think, decided to de-emphasize solar because they realized how costly it was. Um, it, there's no good answer. Like this, this acquisition does not provide any good answer to that question. So that is still very much unknown in the in the longer term, the kind of in the five to ten year range. In addition to that, there is also I will say on the grid services component, right? Um, Sunrun puts a lot of weight in their grid services uh, model, and that being the future of residential solar plus storage. But it's still an unproven business model, right? So there are a lot of policy supports that are leaning in favor of, uh, you know, grid services, you know, FERC 841 and some additional policy supports that will allow DERs to, to participate in wholesale markets. But, you know, that's not something that we really think as a company will be established and uh, scalable until probably the, like the late 2020s. And so we're looking at an environment where, I mean, even when we're forecasting capacity prices in the Northeast, they're not necessarily enough to support additional value for the customer. And so I, I'm still very hesitant about fully buying into that model. I think in theory, it sounds really great, but it also selling solar plus storage ramps up the price to the customer, which makes you get back to these kind of market penetration questions, um, just increasing that absolute price point. But also those values, even if you are fully buying in and the, and the policy supports are there, uh, it's just unclear whether whether that's enough value to offset the additional kind of cost of customer acquisition of 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 be, if that being the future of your model. So um, I think there are still a lot of unanswered questions for uh, for Sunrun with respect to the long term value of this acquisition. Yeah, I think the other related to the grid services stuff. I mean, the other big question is you know there's it seems like we're heading toward a world where there's going to be 
some value to be attached, at least in most locations, to load control in a home, right? But who owns that and how they interact with the grid is still an open question. It's doubly so if we see meaningful penetration of electric vehicles because an electric vehicle adds the single largest source of load that is highly flexible and controllable to a home. And so there's going to be this really interesting battle between players who are resource specific, like an EV charging company player, or for that matter, a residential storage company versus whole home aggregation players who want to take everything in your home and control it dynamically and aggregate a bunch of homes versus just utilities doing it top down and then third party kind of aggregators in between and figuring out where all that stuff sits. Oh, and I should add like thermostat companies, for example, right, which are already controlling HVAC systems. So, you know, on the grid services stuff, it, it seems like there's there's a market there, no question. I think you're right to highlight that it's unclear how big that market is in the near term, especially relative to like a fairly large business in Sunrun's core. Um, but also, I think there's a question of like, where in that stack does the control sit? Where does the customer interface sit? Um, and who's doing the the hard work of integrating that stuff with the grid. Sunrun clearly wants to do that themselves. And so it seems to me highly likely that Sunrun is going to somehow try to get into the control of electric vehicle chargers game before too long, whether that's through a partnership or totally independently. Um, but there's going to be other players who are gunning for the same thing. Right. I guess I, I would just question the the synergies of owning the assets and installing the assets long-term versus being the service provider. Like, I don't know. I think it makes a lot of sense right now because they're starting to install more solar plus storage. But there's a lot of, I mean, there aren't a ton of synergies between an inst- a national installation business and controlling all of these internal home load kind of management technologies and and bidding those into additional and like ancillary markets. So I guess long term, I, I would be curious how much, I mean, if they are able to increase their solar plus storage attachment rates, I think that's probably another question here as well, right? If they're at 30 to 50% attachment rate by the mid 2020s, maybe you have a, maybe you have a, a you know, a, a better uh, rationale for that. But I, I guess I just would be, um, I guess I'm still a little bit skeptical about the rationale of having such a, a an asset-heavy um, company that is also combined with this grid services uh, management. Those seem like two kind of distinct businesses that don't necessarily need to be within the same company. All right. Gun to your head. Their combined market share of Sunrun and Vivint as of the time of integration you said will be somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of the residential solar market what will it be in five years so i think i think they'll consolidate i think they can get up to 20 to 25 percent of the market i think they will i think their market share will increase and i part of that part of the reason is because of exogenous factors right so i think you know we've talked a lot about the specifics of what this acquisition means for sunrun and vivint but there's so many external factors that play into here like first of all all of the assumptions that i'm making right now are predicated on headwinds right a, a variety of of risk factors covid-19 the implications that that has for selling solar an impending or current recession which has you know downward pressure on consumer spending in addition to an ITC step down. 
So all of those conditions are, those conditions, I should say, are disproportionately impacting local installers that we mentioned earlier on in the show. And this is the same across all industries, but companies that have a more robust balance sheet and can weather the storm, have the, have the capital to um, continue to, to sell in this environment, are just able to deal with these market disruptions a lot better. And so I think what's going to happen, even regardless of the acquisition, was that someone was going to increase their market share at the expense of local installers. And I think they have a better opportunity to do that now. As I mentioned, I'm very, um, you know, I, I agree with the rationale, at least in the near term, the next, say, two to three years. But they're going to gain some market share at the expense of smaller local installers that have had to furlough workers because of the recession. And I think we're going to be in this environment for at least the next probably 12, maybe 18 months. And that consolidation will do a lot to their, you know, establishing their market share. So um, I think it could get up to 25% in, in large part driven by what's likely to happen with a lot of smaller, uh, the longer tail of installers. Austin Perea is a senior analyst at Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables. Uh, I am Shale Khan. Stephen Lacey is out this week. As you can tell, when the cat is away, the mice will play. And in our case, that means we will go super deep and super wonky on one specific small area of the climate tech revolution. So everybody get on Twitter and tell Stephen how awesome this episode was so we could do more like it in the future. We are excited to have him back next week. Um, as always, please Leave us a rating or review on Apple or Spotify or anywhere that you get your podcast. Uh, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from GTM. <laughs>